Hello again, Game of Loners. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sam. And today is another live Q&A from my Monday Mortgage Melt earlier on in the week, where we talk all about mortgages for turnkey buy-to-let. Something nice and simple, but also a very, very important theme. We talk about whether you can use mortgages for the BRR, buy refurbish refinance strategy, one of my favourite questions to ask, as many of you will know. Um, And of course, we are talking about the big news about 10 times income residential mortgages. Are they myth? Are they reality? Stick around and I will discuss that on this live video. Well, look, enough from me. Let's just get on with the podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 87 of the Monday Mortgage Melt. Happy Easter, everybody, um, and happy Ramadan, I think it is as well. Um, so whatever religion you follow, whatever you're celebrating, happy you. Hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, weather's been great, so um, you know, it's been it's been a lovely, lovely, lovely weekend to have four days out of the office. Annoyingly for me, I actually set aside um, time this weekend to actually concentrate on doing some work and uh, my IT department had other ideas and our server has been down for the entire weekend. Happy days. Um, but um, wanted to make sure that we still carried on with the tradition of having the Monday mortgage melt on a Monday. <clears throat> We did have one on a Tuesday recently because it wasn't too, too well, but even though it's Bank Holiday Monday, still wanted to make sure that we had the uh, Monday Mortgage Mail on a Monday. Um, and by the way, guys, if you have um, been following the Monday Mortgage Mail for a while and you kind of dip in and out um, and you've kind of maybe are one of those people that actually watches it back, I know for some people it's not always the easiest thing to sit there, you know, and watch a video back and, and you know, to, to, to go through all the questions and, and hear what people have got to say. So actually what I'm starting to do now, just as a bit of a heads up, um, is actually putting the audio onto my podcast, the Game of Loans podcast, on a Tuesday morning. So if you do come in late to any of these in the future, or you've got to drop off because you've got to go off and, and do something else, you can actually now listen back, which means you can listen whilst you're doing something else, you know, you're doing the washing or, or doing some work or whatever it might be. Um, listen back to these live Q&As that I do on a Monday, on a Tuesday morning, or throughout the week, whenever you want, um, as they will be on the Game of Loans podcast now. So feel free to go and uh, check out the Game Alone's podcast on all of the major platforms. Uh, go and subscribe, hit the little notification bell and you will be notified as and when new, uh, new episodes come up. Um, but welcome to the Monday Mortgage Melt. So a slightly shorter Monday Mortgage Melt, I might add today, as it is the bank holiday, um, me, and the, me and Mrs Norris are having a, a nice dinner together this evening to sort of end the long weekend on a high. So I'll be jumping off in about half an hour's time, uh, but plenty of time to get into some juicy questions. If you do have any questions for me, guys, please make sure you stick them down in the question box down here not in the comments box down here, because as you can see, as people are joining the live video, their question, well, your question will get pushed up and up and up, and I probably will then end up missing it, and we don't want that. I wanna make sure that I answer all of your questions, um, or at least as many as I can, in the next 29 minutes. Um, so, as many of you know, throughout the day, I post on my stories a question box that I call my priority question box. Um, so. Any questions that have been put into there are always the ones that I'm going to start with on this particular live video, and today is no different. So um, we're going to kick off today with the uh, priority questions. Uh, but just as a heads up, guys, any questions you do have with regards to property finance, property um, investing, anything like that, do put them down into the uh, question box down here. Before we get into the questions, a little quick intro for myself, for those of you that are new to this particular Q&A. Uh, my name's Sam, I'm the owner and director of Grand Union Finance, a specialist finance, uh, property finance brokerage that looks after investors and developers, helps them raise funds for their property projects. So whether that's mortgages, 
uh, development finance, bridging, commercial mortgages, you name it, we source it. Um, and that's really the focus of today's Q&A is anything that's encompassing that. I am very, very fortunate that I work with some of the country's best investors. I count them amongst my clients. I see what they do, how they do it, and how they've become so successful. So I am able to you know, share some tips on how you, as a maybe a newer investor, will also be able to um, to grow your portfolio or to succeed in property, um, in your property investing um, careers. So, but look, let's get straight on to the questions. Um, so as I said, questions from the stories will come first. If you do have any questions, pop them down into the question box down in the bottom right-hand corner. And if you're enjoying this, by the way, um, please do keep hammering the little heart button down in the bottom right-hand corner. It tells Instagram that you're enjoying it. And hopefully Instagram will push this to more people, get more people on, more questions. We all learn a little bit more. So, <clears throat> Let's start off with a nice, easy question. Usually I start off with a tricky one. Start off with a nice, easy one from my stories earlier on. When refinancing, do you need a solicitor? Well, so absolutely yes is the, is the answer. However, let's elaborate on that a little bit because I talk about solicitors quite frequently insofar as um, who, you know, who you should work with, how you pick the right solicitor. And I always say you should have at least two types of solicitor within your power team, okay? Um, and I will come on to why this is important to this question very, very shortly. So. When, if you are a property investor and you're looking to expand a portfolio and you are going to be using various different types of finance, bridging, development finance, commercial mortgages at some point in the future, you're going to need to use a specialist solicitor for those particular types of transactions. We need commercial conveyances, bridging, development finance, it's commercial finance in my book and in the book of the lenders. And so the type, those types of lenders, in terms of what they will be asking of your solicitor, the level is a lot higher than what you would anticipate from a more standard, and I mean that in the nice possible way, conveyancer, residential conveyancer, um, that will just be, you know, happy to deal with the more, the more sort of standard vanilla stuff like mortgages, etc. So you want to have at least one of each of those within your um, within your kind of power team of people that you can access. In fact, um, I've got one of my clients, she's got, you know, 25, 30 properties, I think. And she's got about four different um, sort of residential conveyances that she draws upon at any given time. Because obviously, depending on where the property is, how how busy those those um, solicitors are, um, where um, what panels the various different solicitors are on in terms of mortgage lenders, you know, she will pick and choose who she will work with on each individual refinance or purchase. Um, and then she's got people she can also go for um, when we're when we're doing bridging finance and stuff like that as well. So it's always good to have those types of people on your roster. With regards to this particular question, you do need a solicitor. And when it comes to refinancing, you, I would go with a more standard type of solicitor, somebody that will do you know your basic remortgages, um, and they shouldn't really cost you too much. In fact, some lenders do actually offer free legals on refinances, even on buy to lets. Um, less so on kind of the buy to, the uh, limited company buy to let stuff, but you know they still will offer. Um, sometimes free legals. I'm not the biggest fan of free legals, especially at the moment, if I'm completely honest, because the market is so busy, um, we are finding that those free legal services are also becoming extremely busy. And as a result, as a kind of a, a knock-on effect, um, they the service levels that they we are accustomed to with them, you know, in normal in normal times, they're actually really good because for us as brokers, we uh, us as brokers, I should say, we have access to them that much easier sometimes than we'll have access to a private solicitor, someone that, that you as a client might choose. Because effectively, we have re recommended the lender and the solicitor is is the free legals that works on behalf of the, the lender for for you. So effectively, in a roundabout way, we've 
recommended them as well, if that makes sense. So we will have access to portals, we'll have numbers where we can call at the moment because the market is so busy and because these free legal services are so busy, getting them on the phone is nigh on impossible. Um, and, you know, getting updates from them, you know, the portals aren't updated as, as frequently as they, they normally would be. And sometimes we're even saying, don't contact us because we are too busy to take your calls. So at the moment, a lot of these, um, if, if a lender offers free legals as part of their mortgage product, they might also have an alternative product that offers something we call cashback, which means that on completion, it might be two, three, four, five, six hundred pounds cashback, and you can actually use that to offset the cost of your own solicitor. So it might be better to to go down that route at the moment with free legals being um, an issue. Um, guys, I can see a few people chucking some uh, questions in the comments. Please put them in the question box down here because otherwise I won't be able to bring them up on the screen as I have done with this particular question. So just copy and paste those um, into the questions and I will come to those once I've got through the priority questions from a story from earlier on. Um, but just to wrap up this particular question, so the answer basically when refinancing, do you use a, need a solicitor? The answer is yes unless you're going down the free legal route with a lender in which case they will provide you a solicitor but there is a solicitor working on the process because what they need to do what the solicitor needs to do is they need to um, take the money from your new lender to pay off the existing lender and switch the charges over so your existing lender has a charge over the security which is the property they need to remove that by paying them off with the money this this lender has given them and then give them the charge over the property. So that's what they're, what they're doing basically. But um, good question to kick us off. As I said before, guys, any questions you've got, please put them down in the question box down here, not in the comments, because number one, I'll miss them as people come start coming into the uh, live, because every, every time someone comes in, your question will get pushed back and back and back and back. Um, but also I'll be able to bring it up on the screen as I did with, uh, with the last question. So chuck them into the question box below um, and we'll be able to do that. So, Next question from my stories from earlier on. Um, what are the typical yields for social housing? Very good question, this actually. And it actually brings up a, a it's kind of a mindset thing of um, yield versus, um, so ha how much you're paying for your own time, okay? So I'm a, I'm a great believer that um, when it comes to property investing, it's not passive. It isn't passive income. You might say, okay, well, you know, you're making money while, you're, while you sleep. That is true, but those two things aren't necessarily connected, okay? So making money while you sleep doesn't necessarily make it mean it's passive. You still are spinning the wheel just while you're awake. <laughs> um, and with most properties, buy-to-lets, HMOs, that kind of stuff, Service accommodation is a prime example of the fact that there's a lot of work that goes into that because you, you know, you're doing all these listings and whatnot. Um, <coughs> I haven't got COVID, by the way. I've just literally done a test about 20 minutes ago. And I'm negative, so it's all good. Um, I've just got a tickly throat at the moment. This cold just is not going away. Um, so it's, it's, it's not passive. So any yield, any income, any cash flow that you're generating from these properties, you are exchanging some of your time for that money, okay? Social housing, I would say is the closest thing to a passive income that you can get because the amount of time you need to put into it is less. Now, when you give your property over to a social housing provider, you sign a tenancy agreement with them, typically they're three to 10 years, somewhere in that kind of region. Um, their responsibility, and I've seen countless numbers of these, uh, these agreements, you will be um, 
uh, you will be uh, it will say in, in it will be written into the agreement that they are they are responsible for the upkeep of the property. They have to hand it back to you in the same state in which they inherited it. Effectively, um, they're going to be paying for bills, all this kind of stuff. Um, so you hand over this property to them for three to five, three to ten years, and effectively, apart from maybe having to refinance every now and again you don't really need to do much with that particular property. Unless, of course, something really major happens and they need to get in touch with you. But generally speaking, this is gonna be a very standard um, sort of process whereby you hand it over, hand the keys over, and you kind of wash your hands with it for a, for a little while, which is great. So that's why I think it's the closest thing to passive income. Now, depending on the, on the social housing provider that you go with, or the housing association, or the local authority, whatever it might be, um, that you hand it over to, sometimes they won't necessarily give you better rental income than you would do if you just rented it out as, a, as say, an HMO. Um, so a lot of these, what a lot of these, um, these providers, what they will actually do, social housing providers, is even though you're, you're handing over to them, say, a family home, which has been loosely converted into an, into an HMO, um, it's still considered C3 when you're handing it over, is in terms of the classification, not C4, which is a small HMO. Um, but they will populate the property or fill the property with individuals. So let's say, it's, for example, it's a five bedroom family home, they will put maybe five individual family units in there. Um, they won't require all en suites and stuff like that, like not modern HMOs seem to, seem to require. Um, you know, they will share bathrooms, they will share, share kitchens and living rooms and all that kind of stuff. But the, proper, the, the, the housing association or social housing provider will put individuals in there. So effectively it is like an HMO, and particularly from a, a lender's perspective, it will be deemed to be an HMO. We will need to apply for an HMO product and therefore you will need to um, be able to adhere to the lender's HMO criteria for any, any prospective borrower. But coming back to the question in terms of yields, generally speaking, I find that the yields are slightly lower when you take into account, well, let's not talk about yield actually, let's talk about net cash flow. Net cash flow is probably about the same. Um, as what you would get if you just rented the property out as an HMO or somewhere between a buy-to-let and an HMO. But don't forget, let's when we look at how much time you're putting into it, you're, in terms of you know, how much you're being paid for the time you're putting into it, you're, you're making a hell of a lot more. So that's something to consider when you're looking at this particular strategy because it is really, really important to understand that difference. Um, but putting a load of time, make, making making... £300 net cash flow a month on a property that you've got to spend 10 hours a month on um, is a lot a lot worse than making £200 a month on something that you need to put one hour a month into. Do you see what I mean? So in terms of actually um, uh, exchanging your time for money, it's a much better use of your time, in my humble opinion. Now, it's not as easy to get a mortgage. We know that. We know lenders are not as... Uh, creative as they could be when understanding, you know, that these leases are actually pretty strong. You know, they represent a relatively low risk. Um, there isn't the reputa reputational risk that lenders are concerned about in terms of them actually, um, you know, having to potentially turf out vulnerable tenants onto the street. They're not going to be turfed out. They're going to they're going to turf out the tenant, the senior tenant, which is your um, senior tenant or junior landlord, whichever you, which way you want to call it, which is a social housing provider, that social housing provider is just going to rehouse re them somewhere else. The reputational risk is very, very minute, but lenders are not on board of it just yet. There aren't as many lenders as I would like. In fact, there's actually less lenders as we speak right now than there was this time last year. 
because um, a few lenders have come out of it, which is really annoying, but we're working on it. I'm working with lenders constantly to try and make them realize that this is something they should be looking at. Um, but typically the yields are about probably about the same as they would be if you just rented it out yourself. But the time that you have to put into those properties is just so much, so much less. Um, and also you don't, you don't have to do things like paying for management fees and, and, and stuff like that, because that is then take, and maintenance as well, as I said, taken care of, it should be taken care of by the social housing provider. So make sure that you read the small print, make sure you read the tenancy agreements, make sure that you are, that is written in there, that they will look after the property, they will maintain it and they will manage it. And you don't need to be involved at all because that's, that's why we, uh, that's why we go down that route because we're able to, to basically create as close, in my humble opinion, the closest thing to passive income um, as we can get to. So great second question. Thank you ever so much. Um, so just as a quick update, um, any questions that you've got guys concerning property finance, this is the Monday Mortgage Melt where we talk about property finance, property investing, um, your chance to ask me anything you like, please use the question box down here um, because that is where I will access your question. I'll bring it up on the screen just like this one and um, and I'll answer it for everyone. Doing a slightly short one because it is Bank Holiday Monday. I want to spend some time this evening with, with Mrs Norris. Um, so we've got about 15 minutes left. Let's get cracking with some more questions so, so which one should we go for um uh i'm not actually quite sure what this question means <laughs> so old penelope has asked for buy to let do you recommend a ready to move or a pro yet question mark um i'm i'm now that i've said it out loud i, I think what you're trying to say there penelope is project um so Great question, and I am gonna answer this with the question that I ask prospective new clients. When I speak to new clients for the first time, the first thing that I speak to them about is their long-term strategy. They're getting on a call with me thinking we're gonna be discussing bridging finance or development finance or mortgages or whatever it might be. I, until I understand, or, or and actually more importantly, you understand, what you want to be doing, what, when, you, when you finish, when you finish with your property investing, what does your property company look like? How many properties has it got? Where are they? Um, uh, how much net cash flow are you making on a monthly basis? What, um, how long do you, what do you want to take to get there? Or, or what sort of time frame are you looking at in order to get there? Only once you've answered those questions, can we decide what the answer to this particular question is? Because dependent on the, the answer to those questions will depend on which of those two is going to be best for you, whether it's a, what we call a turnkey buy-to-let investment, which is, as the name would suggest, you can turn your key, open the door, and you can let tenants in straight away. It's ready to go. Um, or um, a, a project, a BRR, buy refurbish refinance, um, something like that is, uh, you know, that's basically what, um, you know, what we're uh, what we're talking about here, which of those two routes is actually going to be best. So I'll give you two examples. Okay. Um, yes, TX, uh, three lives, only two. Um, we did one, we did a, a live video on uh, YouTube on Saturday, all about development finance. So, uh, go and check that out if you haven't already. Um, and then the live today, I don't know which the third one was. Um, but, uh, Hey, if I did one, I didn't even realize good on me. Uh, <laughs> so, Let's talk about this question. Let's give these two different examples um, as to, uh, and, and, and then we can push it in, in one way or another. So example number one, your ambitions are to build a portfolio within the next five years that generates 10 grand a month in net cash flow. And you're gonna do that 
by, you know, single unit buy to lets. Well, in order to achieve that, that's quite a, a big growth in a short space of time. You are unlikely to be able to do that via buying turnkey investments, just get a mortgage, get 25% deposit, buy a house, rent it out, because where are you getting that 25% deposit from? Um, unless you've got businesses that generate you nice, um, you know, lump sum cash on a monthly basis, chances are it's gonna take you a little bit of time. So actually achieving that goal of 10 grand net cash flow per month in five years is gonna be difficult unless we follow the BRR strategy, the buy, refurbish, refinance strategy, in which case we're looking at projects, we're looking at something we can add value to, we can recycle some of our cash and we can pull it back out and we can look at, um, and then going again quicker than it would take to just save another 25% deposit. Chances are we can chuck some flips in there as well so we can ensure that our money just keeps getting topped up from time to time. It might be that we start off doing one BRR, one flip, one BRR, one flip, and then it might go to one flip, two BRRs, one flip, two BRRs, and then maybe one flip, three, one flip, four, you know, and so on and so forth until we've got to a point where the property portfolio is generating enough cash that we're gonna have deposits on a quarterly basis to allow us to keep buying more and more properties, okay? So that is, is one scenario, and in that scenario, something like BRR, buying projects, renovating them, recycling cash is the way to go. The, the other one is that you want to generate, uh, you, want a, you want a small portfolio, because you don't, want to, you don't like you, the idea of using a management agent, you wanna manage themselves, you might just want a, a portfolio of four properties, and you're giving yourself a timeline of six years to do that. That's less than a property a year, there's no need to do BRR when it comes to doing that strategy. Um, buying turnkey investments is absolutely fine. You save your 25% deposit. After you've bought one property, it will take you less time. It might not be massively less time. But it'll take you less time to save your next deposit. So you might buy one property in the first two years. You then got um, four years to buy another three. So in year three, you might buy your second one. But then, because you've got two properties that are generating income, you might be able to buy the other two that you want um, quite easily within the next within the next couple of years. Um, because you're you're not only saving your own money, but you're also generating money from the property portfolio as well. And you know you then get to a point where it it's making you about fifteen hundred pounds a month net cash flow. Bish bash boff, you've achieved your goal in the time frame you wanted to achieve it in with um, very little risk in terms of getting very very standard mortgages and just building your portfolio that way. Of course, when you are doing that, there's nothing to stop you. If you say you put them on a two year fixed rate and in two years time, you know, the market's gone up and you're able to, you know, refinance and put a bit of cash out, you know, put that towards buying the next property. There's nothing wrong in doing that within that time. But you know, once you've reached your four that you want or your five that you want, you can then look at every time you come to refinance, just do it pound for pound or make an overpayment get it down to about 60% loan to value, best rates on the market, and then you know increase your cash flow that way as well. So that's that's kind of the other other end. That's that's what I would do if I didn't have grand ambitions. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. When I, when I say not having grand ambitions, that's not a negative any stretch of imagination because property could just be one part of a diversified investment portfolio. You know, some of my best clients will have property, but they'll also have crypto. They'll also have money in, in you know, um, uh, FTSE trackers, FTSE 100 trackers or emerging market trackers and that kind of stuff. They'll have money in bonds, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Sonny, how are we doing, my friend? The happiest man in the world, if you follow Sonny. Um, always got a smile on his face. Love him. Um, but, you know, so, so property might not be your number one. 
And do you know what as well? This is, I'm just gonna quickly jump onto my soapbox for a tiny second, because you know how much I love my soapbox. Um, it annoys me a little bit how in, in the wider property community, there's this, there seems to be this thing about, you know, you've got to love property. You've got to love it. It's got to be, you know, you've got to eat, sleep, um, you know, do whatever to property. It's, all, it's got to be in, in your brain all the time. And actually, I've got a few clients that freaking hate it. You know, they, they, they know, they understand that in this day, at right this very second, I know that there's some, you know, crypto lovers out there that would probably disagree. But right now, the richest people in the world are probably, are, are many of them are rich, not just because of the businesses that they run, but because of the real estate they have in the background. If you look at the, the Times Rich List, 90% of them are known for something. Alan Sugar is known for Amstrad. It was Amstrad, wasn't it? Um, but he's there because of real estate. He's there because of property, because he's taken his profits from his Amstrad business, from supplying Sky with their Sky boxes and that kind of stuff back in the day. He's taken all his profits from that. And guess what he's done with it, people? Bought property. The property generates income, the property grows in value, and that's where his net worth comes from. Um, and, and now he is able to just, you know, sit on the board of many companies, I'm, I'm sure, and point fingers at people and tell them they're fired on telly and make a nice profit from that. So. That's, um, that's my soapbox bit over and done with. If you don't love property, it is okay. You can still use it as, a, uh, as an investment strategy. So um, seven minutes to go. I think we've got one question left, um, two questions left. Um, Sonny, I'll, I'll answer your question quickly. Um, I heard someone on TikTok saying that they got lenders who offer lending 10 times your income. Is this true? Yes. Um, I am absolutely certain there are some lenders out there that will offer offer as much as that. I don't do a, sh a shed load of re residential mortgages, as many of you know. Um, but when whenever you look at some of these things with mortgages where it's like, this is amazing, blah, 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 blah. They're, they're only available for a very, very small number of people. They're, the criteria for something like that is going to be, you know, you've got to earn a certain, you've got to, there'll, there'll be a minimum income requirement for that. So like £75,000 a year, you're only going to get it if you, because then you'll, then you'll deem to be, um, you know, less risk. Um, and yeah, and by the way, as Sonny's just, just followed up with this, is this just for residential? Yeah, because residential mortgages, don't forget, are based on your own personal income and expenditure circumstances. Buy-to-let mortgages are based on the rental income. Um, and it's not the same as like a like a um, an, uh, an income multiple. Similarly, I mean, it's residential mortgages are based on an affordability assessment, not income multiples. But Generally speaking, there's a good sort of rule of thumb that it's it's somewhere between four and five times your, your annual salary is roughly what you're going to be looking at in terms of residential mortgage. But um, when it comes to uh, buy-to-let mortgages, it's based on the rental income that the property generates. Um, so, but it's not it's not like an income multiple. It's there's a rental calculator. So generally speaking, what lenders will do is they will stress test your interest rate, uh, stress test your monthly interest payment at five and a half times a five and a half percent interest. And then the rent will need to be 125% of that figure. If it fits that calculator, then you're probably going to be okay um, in terms of the loan amount that you want. Um, so, so that's how it works. But yeah, anything where it's like, you know, the, the a residential lender is breaking the mould, there is generally speaking a lot of underlying criteria that you need to hit. You're going to have to have probably like, you know, if, 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 if the maximum uh, credit score is 999 on Experian, you're probably going to need to have like 1,012 <laughs> to 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 get to access it like your, your credit score has to be absolutely perfect 
there'll be a minimum income requirement, there'll be a minimum loan size, there'll be loads and loads of things, which doesn't mean they can't access them. You just need to be aware that this is not a mass market type thing. This is for a very, very small uh, select group of people. But these lenders, what they do is they'll go, this is, this is what we, we can offer you this, not hoping that people will come to them and go, can I access this? They go, let's have a little look. No, you can't, but we can offer you this instead. Okay, great. Because they won't necessarily know the difference. They won't go to a broker or they won't go around the high street because they don't want to do like 12 credit checks when they do decision in principles. They'll just do one with that particular lender. They'll tell them how much they can borrow, which is on their standard products maybe because they don't fit the criteria for the 10 times or the six times or the seven times income. And then what they'll do is they'll, they'll win business that way. So it's just, you know, it's it's like a lead magnet type thing, you know? So, sorry, I'm snivelly because I've still got this bloody, bloody cold. Um, and yeah, just on to the last question now, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, Joseph has asked, would you recommend doing BRR with a mortgage, buying a house with a mortgage refurb and then refinance after six months? This is a very easy question for me to answer, Joseph. The answer is, of course, no, nudder. X nay, I can't think of uh, no, uh, nine. I can't think of any any other how to say no in any other language. Uh, if anyone can tell me how to say no in any other language, um, drop it into the comments. Uh, no, 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 no. And there's lots of reasons for this. Okay, so number one, mortgage means till death. It's a long term finance product it's not meant for six months if you tell your let your lender when you're applying that your plan is to renovate this property refinance it in six months they will decline your application so i know what you're thinking we just won't tell them no 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 nigh there we go uh in punjabi nigh <laughs> um so and if we but if we don't tell them then we are obtaining a finance product by deception. Now, if you really want to go down the, that, that route, that is fraudulent activity, my friend. So we can't do it that way. In any case, if you get a buy-to-let mortgage, um, written into that buy-to-let mortgage uh, contract, which is your offer, it should generally stipulate that you need to have the property rented within a 30-day period. If your refurb is any more than a lick of paint, it's going to take you longer than that, and then you could potentially be in breach of your mortgage contract, effectively, which is... You know, not what you want to be doing. Now, also, when you when um, you look at your credit file, you will see mortgages that you take out on your credit file. If you are, if you have, you know, a pattern that you are taking out a mortgage, then you're you're paying it off six months later. You do more than probably two or three of these. Lenders are going to see that, and they're just going to instantly decline you because they don't want to lend to you for for six months. Um, when a mortgage lender is lending money, they are working out their margins based on you probably keeping it for two to five years, the general fixed rate period for a mortgage. So they're, uh, they're working out, right, how much admin time is needed to, uh, you know, to, to take out this mortgage, um, to, to finalise the mortgage application, and then the administrative costs of actually keeping that going, um, you know, each month as you're making your payment, etc. Um, and that's, and they'll, they'll work out their margins based on that. Now, they're not working it out based on six months. And that's what bridging finance is there for. Bridging finance is more expensive because the lender needs to make their margins in a shorter period of time. If you work, if you look at a mortgage, say over five years, a five year fixed rate at say two and a half percent, they're making, um, let's, let's say they're making 1% on that every year. So they're making 5% of your mortgage payment compounded over um, over a five year, over that five year period. Whereas a bridging lender, 
might be charging you per annum, let's say 7%, um, but their margin, they're paying 2% for that money, so their margin is still 5%. So they're just making that much, that's the same money off that, they're making their same profits off the same amount of money within the term of their finance product. And that's, that is the difference between those two. And that's why there's a difference in price. They just ask, they just want to make the same, they're making the same money, but just in a short period of time. What they can do then is they can redeploy those funds once they get them back, um, which is why bridging lenders are a bit more expensive. But at the same time, probably the, the admin that it takes to actually um, actually get a, a bridging loan is probably uh, a lot more than it is to, to take out a mortgage. But um, so there we go. That is the answer to that question. I have answered that question quite a lot, um, but it's look, it's something that I think bears repeating. You can't take out a mortgage when you're looking at BRR, unless you're looking at a more of a hybrid type strategy where you're buying a property, do a very minor renovation to it, sitting on it for say two years on a fixed rate and then refinancing at that point to release the cash. That's the only time that I think you would use a mortgage for, um, for a sort of a hybrid BRR, a long BRR, should we say, but cool, cool, cool. Well, look, Thanks ever so much, guys, for joining me on this live. I know it's been a bit of a shorter one than normal. Um, it's Bank Holiday Monday. I want to enjoy myself. Sun's still just about out. Um, so, look, thanks very much for, for taking the time out to spend half an hour or so with me on this beautiful Bank Holiday Monday. Um, if you have missed any of this, you can catch up with it tomorrow on the Game of Loans podcast. Hopefully, Instagram will allow me to download this video <laughs> as an audio so I can put it on there. Um, I'll also be putting my live Q&A that I did uh, with regards to development finance on the Game Alone podcast later on in the week. That will be Thursday this week. Um, and I've got some great guests lined up over the next couple of weeks on the Game Alone's podcast as well. So keep an eye out for that. But guys, thank you so much for joining me. Hope you've had a really awesome Easter weekend. Have an awesome, awesome week. And I'll see you next week for episode 88 of the game uh, of the not the game alone podcast i've gone about on about that more more than i needed to um the monday mortgage melt episode 88 next week five o'clock see you then bye Yep, that's it. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the episode, guys. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other Game of Loans podcast episodes, please, I would ask you a massive favour to leave a five-star review. It massively helps me grow the podcast and reach more people that will hopefully enjoy the episodes as much as you have. Thank you so much in advance for this, and I'll hopefully see you on the next episode.